now for the next episode of Letters from Home, sending encouragement to your doorstep by capturing the heartbeat of God's people one story at a time. Today's guest is Grace Nelson. She is 89 years young and lives in Everett, Washington. She spent 40 years as a single woman in the country of Gabon, helping to translate the Bible into the Ipunu language. To quote Grace, living among the Gabon people was the dream of her life. In her story, she shares her call to the mission field, her broken engagement, her rocky start, what her 40-year dream was like, the beauty, the hardship, the miracles, the translation work and completion, then her difficult transition back to the U.S. today, and the faithful God who was and is by her side. Grace Nelson, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. I'm so excited to share your story. My daughter Eden Gleesner is here today and she's joining us in the conversation. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's so nice to see you after all these years. Yeah. <laughs> Grace, I'm so thankful that what about 13 years ago I was seven months pregnant with our eight kid. Our paths crossed. We were both at North Seattle Alliance Church together and from the time I met you, I felt so humbled and blessed to know you. Remember, we had you over for dinner at our house because I wanted all eight of our children to hear you share your story because you were a missionary in Gabon and through the Alliance for 40 years. I'm so excited for us to all hear some of the great things God did through you and in Gabon. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I came up in a very good Christian home. My grandparents came from the old country, and my dad was a very strict, quiet man. My mother was very, very into everything, and so hmm. we had a fun family. There were two brothers and me, and we were right down there by the Oak Lake Tabernacle, which was on 100th and Aurora at that time. Oh, and we had missionaries because that was Grandma's church. Grandma was the Christian Missionary Alliance lady. So we always went to the missionary conferences. And huh. that's where I met this first lady from Africa. And she asked us who of us were going to grow up and tell those people about Jesus. Because if we didn't grow up and do it, nobody would tell them. Huh. And that was, you heard that at an Alliance church when you were a little girl? Ten years old. Ten years old. Where did your faith story begin? My father was a very godly man. He would never allow us to take medicine in those days. Hmm. And I remember that being a real conflict with my mom and dad because dad would say, no, we'll pray. And he would pray and we'd get well. So we had to have somebody taking care of us that was more than my dad or my mom. It was God and he had a plan. And as a little girl, there was something in you that realized that? Yeah, I think we realized it. There was a, an awe about my father. Quiet, but he was... Well, we always had family devotions. We all got down on our knees, and we kissed each other goodnight and went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that was like different for you growing up, having your dad be someone who prayed for things and it happened? I'm sure it did. His emphasis on the Word of God. We memorized scripture verses. We had a lady that was junior young people's leader, and she had us not only memorize scriptures, but hymns. 
so that we would have those songs going through our head. That's great. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot of the old hymns. They still go through my head. Such a blessing. What was it like for you through your teen years? I was always telling everybody that I was going to be a missionary. Really? So they had this feeling that she was kind of different. In fact, when I came home and was retired, I met somebody that had been in grade school with me. and I asked him what he did. He said he'd been in the Navy, and he asked me what I did, and I said I'd been to mission. He said, well, that figures. We sure heard enough about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a teenager, which is pretty neat, with a desire for the mission field. And how did you get from there to Gabon? I went to the Simpson Bible Institute, now called Simpson College, as soon as I could. I had the money to do that. That was a three-year course, and then... And that was in the Seattle area? Yes, down by Woodland Park. From there, we were required to do some kind of job that the Lions would be watching us for two years to see if we were going to be missionary material. Ooh. And I passed that, but then <laughs> I had an engagement, and that engagement broke because the fellow that I was engaged to said he thought we could serve the Lord as acceptably here in America as we could in any other land. And so I took off my ring and gave it back to him, and so I had a few years there of uh, having problems with the Alliance because I had applied as a single girl, then as a, a to-be-married woman, and then as a single person, and they saw this as emotional instability, and they re just decided they would no longer use me as a missionary. Oh. So I had probably two years of just wondering what would happen. Just couldn't believe that the Lord would drop me. And he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been so hard as you had s such a desire for that, but maybe it was part of him preparing you to go. I don't think there's any mistakes in our lives. I think everything that happens, it may not seem like it's going to be useful, but it is. It's part of the plan. Yes. What were those two years like? Waiting to get to Africa. I kept trying to do, I did go down to the University of Oklahoma and took the Wycliffe courses, thinking that maybe they would accept me. Hmm. And I did very well there, and I sent my grade cards to headquarters and said uh, they were missing a good missionary, and they should reconsider, and they did. But I had another year. You took the classes, and then you were back here, back in Seattle area. They... I worked at the Simpson Bible Institute where they were watching me. Always watching. <laughs> <laughs> how did you end up going to Gabon? Like, did, I got my first... how, how did the decision process go for where you were to be placed? Or when they, is it... when oh, they said I was accepted, they gave me my first appointment to South America, and I had been gathering the inf outfit that was necessary to go to South America, and I got this letter saying there was a single lady that needed someone to live with her, and so would I change fields and go to Gabon. Now, I had grown up with a missionary kid in my junior year in high school. She had been home on furlough, and her parents were missionaries in Gabon. So I was, it, I was familiar with the country, and it was a good basis for me. And so I went to Gabon. Can you take us from what it was like, so how many bags you had packed up, you arrived there, what was on your heart going there, you know, like 
what struck you when you got there? We, in those days, packed in big drums. My family and friends helped me pack those drums. They didn't get there as soon as I did, but I moved in with this lady who was considerably older than me. She was a nurse and was down at the dispensary quite a bit, and I just went right to work. Fortunately, Wycliffe had taught us how to learn a language. There were, I think, six or eight language lessons for this language called the Ipuno. I dug right in because of my training. I kept working on things that they had said were important and just learned the language like that. Now, some missionaries first went to France because it's a French country, a former French colony, and some missionaries, but I was asked to go quickly because this lady was having headaches and she, they thought it was because she was lonely. And so I learned Jipunu without uh, intermediate language because they didn't speak any English, of course. And I'm sure here again is what God had planned because at that point I didn't ever dream that my work would be translating the Bible. Wow. So you got there and you're you're doing all these language lessons. What was it like being there? You lived in a house with the house you showed me with the lady. There was was a, there a church or can you give us the There was a mission station. That was the old way of doing missions. House for the missionaries, a school, a dispensary, and a church. And that's the what I came into. This was before the country was nationalized and so the missionaries were in charge. Um, the Af Africans weren't. And then I began teaching school. There was this big chart, and you'd go ma, ba, and teach these little kids. And one little, little kid would just giggle and giggle and giggle. And oh. when, he, when I got so I could talk, I said to him, when I first came here, why did you giggle so much? He said, but you're so tall and your smock so talk so funny, just like a little kid. <laughs> you're like, well, back to the books. Got to keep working on the language. <laughs> so I lived there in that until my first furlough. I came home. It would be less than wise to not let on that I was a little disturbed. It seemed that everybody came to the mission and they wanted school or medicine and I didn't see this as what I had thought missions were going to be. I thought mm. I would be living among the people and we would find a way to uh, love each other and I would have the opportunity of telling them about Jesus. So when I got home here, I had some doubts. I just thought, I don't know. How I long just, had that been? Four years. Yeah. And then I was at a meeting and the man that had first told me that they could not use me because I was a high-strung, nervous individual that would hardly do well in time of crisis, this was over my book of engagement, he said, you know, I want to tell you, Grace, I misjudged you. Huh. And this was just one of those confirmations that maybe it was okay to keep at it. So I went back and Shortly after that, I spent another term learning the language better. And then my third term, I moved into an African village and had the light dream of my life. Hmm. Oh, praise the Lord. So how long had you been there at that point? Eight years. This was going on the ninth. Wow. I moved in a little house that we used as a passenger house because to get to one mission station to another, you had to spend the night somewhere. And there was dirt floors, thatch roof, 
no screens on the window. It was rather interesting. Oh. And this is a bad bug place. Yeah. Very bad bugs. <laughs> So you'd spend the night there, like between missionary, what did you call it? Stations. Stations. And that is where I lived. And little by little, I got a, the first thing I did was a cement floor. And then, unfortunately, I did screens next. And then, unfortunately, I took the thatch off and got a metal roof. And that was a mistake. The thatch had so many things that would when the wind would blow down would throw all this stuff, but the metal roof was hot. You were just really cooking, <laughs> cooking inside. It was a very hot country. There was just three years of dry, uh, three months of dry season, and those three months probably doesn't ever get more than 70, and then we had very high temperatures. Oh. People came and went as they wanted to come. You always opened your door, and from then on, people could come and go, and that was what you wanted to have happen. One of the ways so the community I, people? They just your... come in and, yeah. and sit. Now, my next term, I brought those indoor-outdoor squares to put on my cement floor, and the little old ladies then didn't have to sit on chairs. They didn't want to sit on chairs. They wanted to sit down where they were. And that's when I began. There were two women that came from our Uleka station to live in that village. And they had come to the Lord but were very baby Christians. And they would come and those ladies would memorize whole chapters of the Bible. That was what I realized was the only way that I'd really, really make connections with them. How do you feel like God equipped you during that time for the ministry you were doing? When I got out of the truck, when I landed on the mission field, when I left Seattle Airport, the Simpson bunch of Simpson people were there singing, God will take care of you. And when I landed on the Lake Station, the Nationals were singing, God will take care of you in that native tongue. <laughs> and I just, that was the thing. And that was the feeling that would come back to my heart every time a little woman would come up, you know, these, this was a polygamous society, so some of them were wives, two and three wives together and with one man, and it was just such a different thing, and there were jealousies among the wives, and as they came to know Christ, this was the thing that the Lord worked on. There was one little lady, when I started having women, meetings for women, she got up and she said, I'm going to pray, and so we said, all right, go ahead and pray. And she said, well, God, before I became one of these children of yours, I, when I got mad, I smoked my pipe. But now you're going to have to be my pipe because I don't <laughs> smoke my pipe anymore. <laughs> and I actually opened my eyes to look at her and just, she was making up a story here, you know. <laughs> what is this woman doing? But she was honest. This mm. is what she was asking the Lord to do substitute be a substitute for her pipe at that time you said at one point you were translating helping translate the bible so when I you were memorizing it i started right away when we got the house up there on the hill livable i mean we could sit in the house and the translator lived in a an african house just down the hill from me and he at that time just had one child and by the time this whole thing was finished he had nine <laughs> <laughs> so i lived pretty much as a part of their family as well as part of the women's families um, one of our dearest christian women her daughter was my house girl the mission required that we have house help because we were to give full time to our work and of course our clothes had to be taken to the river to be washed and um, they had to be ironed because of all the disease you had to keep 
the, this rule. So I had that girl for my house girl for 12 years there at Nally. Her mother was the wife of a witch doctor, and she had these four children, and Rose was my Ibanga, and Roger, and she had two more. One died. Through all that death of her child and her living in that atmosphere, this woman was just a godly, godly woman. And her kids decided this was the way to go. And now she was one of those that encouraged women. Do you still keep in contact with yes, any I, of the people? I keep that... in contact. In fact, just recently, I got a long email from Roger. That's the son, Mavioga is his African name. And he told me where all five of his girls were. Two of them are in Europe. One of them is in some other African country. And they're all coming home for Christmas. Oh, what a blessing. If we could talk a little more about the whole translation process. Like, what was your role in helping with the translation? How long did the process take in total? And, like, what, what language it's available? 27 years total. The way we began was I had the translator and he had enough French so that he could read the text in French and I had the books that I had been given at Wycliffe. So we would just we just started in the New Testament. Matthew went right on through. I would write it down. That night I would type it all up. The next day we would read that and make corrections. And then what we did was I had an old mimeograph and it was no longer possible to get the tubes with the ink in them, so I would have to draw ink out of these new things and put it in the thing that fit the mimeograph, and then we would run off with space and a half between, so that we the put we put these out for the African pastors. They would read them. Bring I would bring them all back, and we would make another copy. So we'd go through that whole process all over again, send them out, and then when the New Testament was just about finished, the Bible Society took interest in it, and they sent a representative from England, and they decided to print for us. So then I used a little Tandy 100, and I had to go to some place where there was electricity, because I never had electricity at that place, and do these little tapes, send the tapes in, and then they would send manuscripts back, and then we would correct from there. And what's the language? Yipunu, Y-I-P-U-N-U. Could you speak like a sentence in it? Mumbai Zambi, I'm a vegamon on you. I'm a roundabout that's John 3.16. How would you say they really got to know you directly? I believe it was by helping them in what they did for their lives. When they had their babies, they sat around the fire until the baby came, and then um, we would all sit there while the woman in those days would go out and dig her own hole and put the sun in it. And that was one of the changes that I made. I was very careful not to make them make changes. And then the next thing would be if a animal was killed, such as an elephant or a big gazelle or a big uh, deer, I would go to the edge of the forest and they would put the meat in the back of the truck, and then they wouldn't have to carry that in. And that was another way. And then on the other side, I expected them to come into my house. They weren't comfortable at first, but they would, um, my food for them was to help them memorize. They 
had never learned to read and write, and so we would go through verses and then chapters, and it was amazing how quick their mind would grasp. I tried sewing, but their eyes were so bad they couldn't hardly even thread a needle, so then they had to bring the kids to thread the needles for them, and we didn't get too far. And then I would go down and just sit at their fires when they were telling their news. And another thing that we all did was if somebody died, the women sat around the corpse, the body would be put in, and then anything that they had as a debt had to be settled as we were sitting around that body because once the lid was on the coffin, no more debts could be collected. What, what did that mean exactly, that they paid off their debts? or They <clears throat> cleared out one of the women's uh, kitchens and they put a mat that they had woven, the body was put on that, and they usually had bathed the body, and then we would all sit around that body uh, on the floor. Now, it, they were, my dignity wouldn't let me do this, but they would take orange blossoms or orange leaves and stick them in their noses, so they would smell that, but there was something about that that I never could quite do, so I just, suffered. <laughs> it seemed so disrespectful for me to sit there with orange leaves in my, you know, it was just one of those crazy things that you don't have any explanation for, but I couldn't do. And then we would sit around the body, then when the hole was dug, then we'd all go out with, they would put the lid on the coffin once all the debts were cleared, and then we would go out to the hole and then we'd stand there while they put all the dirt back in and in the heat. It was stinky. <laughs> and that is one thing that was very hard for me at first to sit there with those dead bodies. Uh, the odors, um, the pain that there was as they sat there with someone they had lost. This was a polygamous society, so a man would sometimes have four or five wives, so they would sit directly now, early on, um, they would roll in the dust and the dirt to show how sorry they were because they didn't want to be accused by the other people that they had eaten the spirit of this person that had died. But we were able to learn to sing hymns around the body and do those kind of things which brought the atmosphere of Jesus Christ into that death. Would there be like a meal kind of thing or would people retreat to a different area and talk about, was there any way no, to celebrate the life? No, because they or? have a, the Bapuno have a, a custom that women go into widowhood. And so they, this woman has to, they have cleaned out the place and she has to sit in that until, according to their custom, um, the witch doctors have paid to reduce the, remove the curse. This took a while for it to dr drop away because they still wanted to be sure that they weren't being blamed for that death. There's no natural death. Some spirit had to cause that. In the community you were in, it sounds like they had a lot of different cultural traditions. Were they a certain religious background or? No heathen, always witch doctors that came if anything went wrong and they would put strings up in the village so that, that evil spirits couldn't get in and they would pay great sums of money like a cow or, you know, I mean like a sheep or a goat 
and this would just break my heart when I think of what they were doing to try to be okay when I had Jesus to give them. You were saying earlier that also a way that you helped was with births. What did that look like? The, de- the birth of a child is very interesting. There's an old woman in the village that is what they call the child bearer. And she comes in and she cl- has the woman that's giving birth clean her toe and then she wraps it with a dirty old rag and she sticks that in the vagina. And when there's a contraction, oh there's someone sitting behind her and they pull the shoulders, and that woman, that first birth, I think I, I almost lost my eyes, you know. <laughs> I, could, I absolutely couldn't believe this was going on. And then when the, when the baby comes out, uh, there's an old cloth that they wrap that baby in, and then that woman, until we changed that custom, went out and dug the hole, put the placenta in, and came back in and put the child to the breath. What was like the health care system like? Eventually there did there was a government dispensary in Nealy, but these nurses were not they were males and they were not well trained. So they mostly helped people with snake bites. They did introduce malaria prophylactics so that the people wouldn't have malaria. Gabon is a country full of filaria. And that's this worm that's in your body. It's the same worm that is in dogs, the hookworm things, and that's what caused elephantitis. Those are big legs in these people because that gets in the lymph, lymph nodes and their legs swell. So there was a lot of that. And then the Peace Corps came in and they did a wonderful job. They were able to, well before the Peace Corps came, the Nestle milk people came in and they persuaded the women not to breastfeed but to use Nestle's milk. So then the woman would go off to the forest and leave one of the younger children with this baby and then the younger child would eat the milk and the babies were just getting in off condition. Then the Peace Corps came in and they were able to introduce a way for these women to understand what the milk was doing. It was ruining the children's teeth and it was just a disaster. Little by little, this whole thing grew. There were government hospitals, but they were pretty dirty. You had been there 10 years, so your next 20 or so years, you spent all this time getting to know the people and their customs and their traditions. What do you love about the people? Like, what? how did they impact you personally? I guess their generosity. You never go to an African village without coming back with a gift, whether it's bananas or eggs. or And if you're a really good guest you get a goat. <laughs> I had two goats in my whole oh. life. This is what they they have goats are everywhere. Goats and they well they call them sheep if the if the tail goes down and goat if the tail goes up but these are their well. You know you'd have to be somebody pretty amazing to get a goat. Amazing grace. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just that I was called there. I was to be part of that scene, and I don't. I, I know my family thought I would never make it because I, w- I was such a clean neck. I would change my dress when I was a little kid again and again because I didn't like, wanted to be dirty, and they they just couldn't imagine that this would work for me. What was your family thinking while you were there? You so you you didn't see them very often. Every four years or so, and your your brothers and your parents, how did they feel about you serving? 
Well, I think my older brother just thought, uh, you know, it's something she's got to do. My younger brother was sympathetic. It was very hard on my mother. And dad just happy that God gave him a missionary daughter. Oh, that's sweet. Would they write you letters? Yeah, but you know, those were air forms, and they would take months to come. And then there was one time we had six months without any mail. That was when there was a French to-do in France, and they weren't putting mail through. But you, you, I know it's so hard for anybody that hasn't been there. If you become a part of this, you aren't even thinking a lot of all this other stuff that's going on. You're just immersed in enjoying yeah. where the Lord has you And every day. it was very mind-consuming to be sure that you were getting this translation. I mean, it, it was, a bit of, was a frightening thing to me. What if we get something that, that isn't right, especially in the early days? And even you would get to a place, and the translator, I was living with their lives. He had trouble with other women, and she would have her problems. There were tensions there that you wouldn't have ever felt here, but they were real. But God was enough. The country was under the control of the French government, and they did a very good job of educating Gabonese. In that small country, there's at least 11 language groups, and there are, of course, some that are more important than others. The language groups that were more important became then politically correct for the country. They had their first gained independence, and then they uh, voted for their first president. And that president lasted until I came home on my next-to-last furlough. And then he chose the next president, and so the one party kind of went through. But that did provide the villages out in either the north or the south. In I was in the south, some government official coming to see what was going on in the village. Fortunately, the Catholics had been there before the Alliance had been there. And the Catholic Church had probably more favor of the government than the Protestant. But I, I never in all those years of uh, sitting there had any trouble with persecution from the people, but the, the priests would sometimes be not very kind. Then they had some conclave in Rome, and they were to be nice, and it did change things. So while you were there, Gabon got its independence? Mm-hmm. It really didn't affect me at all. I was always greeted by the official, and I was always very careful to do everything I was supposed to. They always come late, so you were supposed to stand there in the sun and wait for them, and so I <laughs> managed to do that. They were polite, of course. They spoke French. And before I went back for my second term, I spent a year in France and studied French so that I wouldn't embarrass the people. <laughs> Your last 15 years are the 80s, and you came home in 94, so how did that it, go? It just went so rapidly because by then we had the final manuscripts of the Bible, and now we were waiting for the Bible Society to have funds to print it, and so it was pretty exciting. I actually had to go back for the dedication of the Bible because the funds, that was when we were having that trouble with the evangelists that were uh, not living right and monies weren't coming into these groups. The, the last years I spent at Niali, then when the Bible was finished, I was moved to Fugumu, 
which was the Yeshira tribe, not the Yipuno, and the languages were similar. But the interesting thing was, now the pastor there, the young new pastor, was had a wife of my 12-year house girl. There we were, equals, working huh. together on Fugumu. What, what could be better than to be part of it instead of she under me and, and all the rest? Because that was showing what was happening to the country in missions, in the government, in everything. Things were changing. Three years there, and then the very last year, I was asked to take the mission office in Libreville, in the capital, and there I got people off the planes, got their baggage in, and all of that kind of thing. It, there was a guest house. I don't think I realized that year that I was there how awful it was gonna be when it was over, uh, which was oh. a good thing, because you were so busy entertaining and getting through the customs and all the rest, that your life was just, it was over. And then I came home and I did two years of going from church to church. You were assigned by the New York office at that time. And I spent it on the East Coast and South and the South of the country and in other places telling what God had done. So I did two years and then the next two years were awful. <laughs> because here I had had this wonderful life and built it up and talked how wonderful it was, and it wasn't wonderful for me for two years. It took me two years to... And that's when I think I really knew you folks. I was going through that stage of my life. Really? So, uh -huh. so you're saying your first two years back here in the States were just awful. Mm -hmm. But... Here again, this was part of it. I mean, we aren't told we won't suffer, and suffering is part of living for Christ. I mean, good night, what did he do? <laughs> Came from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fortunately, the church at that time was quite healthy, and I remember somebody saying, I guess it was Art Gertis said to me, well, Ruth Crone adjusted well. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> what was hard for you, Grace? Was it that you wanted to just be there and you couldn't stay no, there it just, or it just it just seemed like America was living so how shall I put it however you it, want yeah it, I think it's it good was a deep commission com, commit commitment to Christ it was playing church we mm -hmm. did parties we did this we did that and the whole thing of seeing I mean, just think of the years at NSA that we didn't have souls, excepting in the Sunday school or the youth group. And this was very distressing to me. So what is this all about? And that, that was very hard for me. What helped you through that? I just said to the Lord, I couldn't really believe that he would have forsaken me, because that's how I felt, because I didn't fit. I didn't fit in social life. I didn't fit in... Uh, what was going on in the church, it, it, it just was so out of possibility to this is how I'm going to have to live the rest of my life, you know. Well, then I got a job at uh, IHS, was a nursing home, and there I was able to talk to people about Jesus. Several came to the Lord, and one of the most precious things, this one woman said, don't let that woman, that religious woman come in here. And they said, no, no, she won't. Well, here she was sitting out in the hall in this wheelchair, but I didn't know it was she. And so I said, hi, my name is Grace. What's your name? And she said, it's Dorothy. And I said, 
well, could I roll you into the dining room and we have a little chat? She said, yes. Well, then she saw my pastor sign on. She said, oh, it's you. Yeah, it is me. And I'm sorry. They told me you didn't want any of this religious junk, so I'll just roll you right out in the hall, and I'm sorry. Well, she said, we could talk a little bit. Do you know it <laughs> took her five years to come to the Lord, and her daughter came to the Lord at her memorial service. Mm. Wow, that's precious. so. When I began to, you know, in unless you were, I mean, you were ministering to Christians at a church, the youth and the children. That was a little different, but you know, those adults have been sitting on those pews for a long time. Yes, and Grace, when I came over here last month, you were so sweet. You had tea and coffee set out for me and you had made cinnamon rolls and you really blessed me and you introduced me to some of your neighbors here in this complex and I know the Lord's totally provided this just amazing place because you didn't have you didn't have anything coming back being on the mission field and God has given you and now you said you haven't been able to drive for two years but he's given you this little uh, community here in like a little, uh, it's called Ancora, right here in Everett and um, Everett, Washington. And he's given you a little ministry here. How, how is this stage of life for you? I'm just thankful that I have what I need to live and then some. And um, I set up for the evening, the Thursday night prayer meeting and get speakers and people for that. And then, where is that? I, I see all these little individual dwellings, but is there's, there's a community two meeting? Community there? rooms. There's one up here and one below. The one below is more for for socials, and this one's for other meetings. And you have a prayer meeting there? Yeah, on Thursday nights. The encore. That's part of. This was a Christian organization in the beginning for missionaries and retired pastors, and then it, you know, has evolved to be something else. I'm perfectly at ease here. I'm well cared for. Recently, the Lord has given me a verse from Matthew, Matthew 6:33, in the Message: Steep your life in God reality. God initiative, God provision. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Amen. Grace, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Here is your P.S. Some extras about our guest. Are you ready for some questions? Certainly. Ooh. <laughs> what African food do you make still? Palm oil gravy. It's this thick thick stuff. It's the palm nuts and you, there you have to put them in the, these nuts in there and pound them in a the mortar and a pestle and then put the, that oil in there and it comes up this orangey stuff and it sent me home with high cholesterol. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy it now in a tin can down in the public market. Do you have any pet peeves? Dirt. And I lived in it forever, you know, but I am pretty hard on myself if this house gets messy. What is your least favorite household chore? Making the bed. <laughs> oh, but it's made so nice. I saw it. It looks pretty. Well, it's that somehow that gives me a backache. Your favorite holiday? Easter. What do you like about it? The hymns up from the grave, heroes of the mighty triumph for his foes. Lives a victor, a dark domain. A modern convenience you now love? A dishwasher. <laughs> I never thought I'd even hardly use it, 
But it is so nice because that was something you had to put up with. Because in the rainy season, you had rainwater for dishes. In the dry season, you had water from the icky. And I always never felt that those dishes were really clean. And then Edmonds, I had a lot of company there. And when I got here, I thought, what will I do with a dishwasher? <laughs> and there is nothing like taking those glasses and all those dishes out, sparkly clean, and put them in the cupboard. I love that. Yes, me too. <laughs> you never married? Nope. Was that hard for you? I don't think once I ever just realized this is what God had for me. Sometimes when I was home on furlough, and I would see my friends with their children, and then as I got older and I saw my friends with their grandchildren, I would think, oh, it's kind of a loss. And then I think, but look what he gave me, you know. What would you say to somebody who's single in their 20s and contemplating missions? Don't ever do it unless God has called you, because you can't do it on your own. Single missionaries can be a hindrance rather than a help because they are still longing for that part of their life to be fulfilled. Two great mentors in your life. Pastor Mark in Gabon and Divingo there at, uh, he was one of those godly men that you just sensed his presence. And he helped me through so many things in my first term. He would scold me, he would praise me, and he would tell me that I was showing my emotions too much. Uh, I have, have always had a pretty quick anger, and when I would see men abusing their wives and this kind of stuff, there was nothing I could do about it. Pastor Mark Levingo was, was a tremendous influence on my life. And probably one of my professors at Simpson was a real help to me, Reverend Hazlett. Your favorite Bible verse? In Isaiah, and this was started me in Africa. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron, and I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches hidden in secret places. Oh man, what a great verse. I'm gonna look that up. Do you know what the reference is? It's Isaiah 49. Did you witness any miracles in Gabon? I had a miracle myself. I um, got typhus and it turned into a, a tremor and they were going to send me home. It was in my second furlough, and they sent me to, I didn't know what I had, because they sent me to a French hospital. No, it was my third term. I went to this French hospital, and this doctor came in. He always talked in French, and he kept saying, T-foo, T-foo. And finally, he brought in an American that was visiting, and he said, this lady is an American, and she's had typhus. And I said to him, you speak English all this time, and I was sick the whole time with typhus <laughs> in French? He said, but look how much more you know now. But anyway, I went to the station. They were waiting for permission to send me home. And one night I was staying with a single missionary, and she was always having babies at night. That's when they seemed to be born. And so I was always very careful in the morning to come out and not disturb her because she was tired. And I woke up and, you know, we had these mosquito nets around us. So you, in order to get your flashlight, you had, and I thought, good night, I, I think I'm okay. I put my hand out like that, it wasn't shaking. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I wanted to shout all over the place. I'm healed, I'm sure, but look, I had been healed. Wow, praise the Lord. 
Eden, you wanted to ask a question about power? Oh, yeah. Where have you seen God's power in your life? In the lives of other people that... Uh, just, my... just a place where you really just got to experience God. Oh, numerous. <laughs> um, my, my most recent was my accident when I totaled my car. I still don't know. I was coming out of the spaghetti factory, and the guy in the first lane motioned me to go across, and I went across, and I got whacked just like that. And I do not know how I got from that second um, lane up into that Bartell drive in parking hmm. lot. There I was, and this lady appeared, and of course there was glass all over me, and. She says, are you all right? And I said, yes. And she said, well, um, she started brushing the glass off. And then she called 911, and she just disappeared. I don't know where she came from. I don't, huh. She was in a white pickup, and she was gone, and nobody in that car was hurt. Nobody in my car was hurt. My car was totaled, but what's a car, you know? Mm -hmm. But that, that had to be somehow, because the traffic was coming both ways, you know? Why didn't I get hit by that the car, the traffic coming this way? And then the Christmas that I was, I took the African kids with their pageant out to the other villages. I was on the log bridge and I missed one of the logs and the car tipped over like this and the gal in the middle was Rose, my house girl, seven months pregnant. Somehow those Africans just got in and lifted that car back up and turn the car around and then driving back over those logs was the worst thing I ever did. Then I go to bed that night and I'm thinking, you see, if, if you cause somebody an accident, they can call witch doctors to curse you. And I thought, what if Rose doesn't have her baby, you know, or the baby's dead? That night was just unreal. And then the morning, here I see this whole bunch of Africans coming up, and I thought, oh, dear Father, I'm going to need an awful lot of help here. And they all had brought me gifts because nobody was killed in that accident. Wow. I had bananas, peanuts, chicken, eggs. Yum. <laughs> and, any goats? No. And, no. <laughs> Just kidding. And then she, that three months, was I was still nervous. Grace, what focus has guided your life? The word. Mm-hmm started when I was a kid, you know, and it was necessary then, so, and of course, working in the Word like I did, what a gift. Yes. One thing you said earlier was that you, when you came back, you felt like the church, they were playing church. Do you still feel that way? I think I've learned to let him be the judge, and when people do the fussing about the music and all this, it, it really disturbs me, because this, this is what we're living in. We don't have to be a part of that, and that isn't what I'm going to get my joy from, but somebody else is. And you youth that are, are coming up now, you, if you don't have the word, I don't know how you're going to stick it out, because it's getting wicked. It's always been wicked, it, it, but it's as wicked as a, a foreign culture now, when you really come right down to it. Yes. The things that are important, and for you kids that are coming up now to have that stability. Hey, it's okay. I'm part of this scene. 
God has me here now. Not, not my mother has her life and my father has his, but I'm part of the scene now. I'm going to be the ones that will lead these people to Christ. Amen. Three last questions. Is there anything on your bucket list? Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Which works perfectly for my next question is, what are you most looking forward to about heaven? Seeing Jesus. I, I can't. As I went to Ruth's memorial service, it hit me again. They say, you know, you're going to see your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I can't imagine that even being what we want to see when we get up there, just to be in that presence yes. to see him. And then my last question, what is your favorite attribute or name of God? Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. This wraps up another story of how our great God is at work in our hearts and in our world. To find out more about Grace Nelson and this podcast, follow Letters From Home on Instagram. If you click subscribe or follow on whatever venue you are listening, the next episode will go right into your queue. 2 Corinthians 3.3 And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Until next time, go in peace. Thanks for listening. We just wanted to take a minute to let you know that just like you and your family, Purposely is also part of a family, the Krista Family of Ministries. Krista helps kids and teens learn and grow in their faith at King Schools and Miracle Ranch Camp. And Krista shares Jesus with people in the poorest, most remote places through world concern. Krista Senior Living is a community of love and care, and Krista Media is a place of hope on the radio. God is changing lives through these five ministries, and Krista is on mission to share the good news of Jesus. To learn more, visit Krista.org.